0: My little golden rule of HRV is that at the best and the worst, the only thing we know for sure is that HRV will tell us pretty accurately what the status of your autonomic nervous system is at that point in time. So, I mean, you know, we'll get into how you measure it, but assuming you do the measurement correctly, um, it'll tell you the status of your autonomic nervous system at that point. So to me, that's super useful.
1: What's up, my friend? I'm health expert, Ted Rice. I'm super excited to share today's episode with you because I've got Dr. Mike T. Nelson back on the show. He was on the show previously talking about longevity and you know a, a number of other topics. It's just a fascinating conversation every time I have him back on the show, one of my favorite people to speak to, to interview. By the way, if this is your first time listening to the show, uh, Legendary Life is all about clearing up health and fitness confusion by breaking down science-based information on how to lose fat, prevent disease, and live a longer, healthier life. So if that's what you're interested in, then you're in the right place. Okay, so let's hop into the episode. Dr. Mike T. Nelson, thanks for coming back on the show, man.
0: Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Greatly appreciate it. I must not have hosed up too bad the times before because I'm back on.
1: Only a little bit. Host, only a little bit. Okay. Host, you only host... Magic of editing. Moderately host. <laughs> You're my one of my favorite people to talk to because you have such a multifaceted background when it comes to health and fitness. And the, one of the reasons why I'm excited to talk to you today is to dive into something called heart rate variability. Had a few... I mean, most of my clients use something that track... Heart rate variability. There's a lot of, it's, it's a bit of a, you know, who who are we listening to when it comes to heart rate variability? Who what's important, what isn't? Is it good for strength training? Is it just good for cardio? Even guys like we talked earlier, Minnow, Henselmans, who I I learned a lot from, doesn't like HRV, but you are the guy who I would go to for all things HRV. So really excited to dive into that talk today. So let's talk about, can you, can we lay some ground rules here and and not ground rules, but uh, so lay a foundation of understanding rather of like what HRV is and how is it different from resting heart rate and why should we care about it? No, Definitely. So
0: I think doing heart rate, we can get some pretty cool data, right? So if you're at rest, we can get your resting heart rate. And that gives us, you know, some pretty good data. It's kind of maybe a a rough marker for, you know, the status of how much cardiovascular training you've done. It's not a perfect metric, but, you know, if your resting heart rate seated is 41 compared to 71, pretty easy to say the person, the guy or gal who's at 41 probably is in a little bit better aerobic shape, probably has a higher VO2 max. Um, If we go the next level down, and not just look at the average, but we look at some fancy math called fine scale variability, which will explain what that is. Instead of taking an average, we're going to look to see from one beat to the next beat, how much difference is there? Like little tiny difference. So if you're sitting at rest, and you're resting heart rate, and we've got really accurate tracking on you, and the first beat is 453 The next beat is probably 46.4, and then 44.7, 45.7. You'll see it kind of oscillates a little bit around maybe an average of 45. So when we do a heart rate variability analysis, it's those little tiny changes that move kind of above and below the average. That's actually what we're looking at. So one beat to the next beat makes a difference. And in the past, like people used to think, oh man, (coughs) You want your heart rate to beat just like a metronome, man. The more, you know, dead on, every single beat, 45.00001, that's awesome. You're at rest. You're steady state. You're not, quote unquote, doing anything. And now we know that that's that's pretty false, right? If your heart is like a metronome, you've got a very high risk for everything from cardiovascular disease, health, everything else. Um, And this has been kind of known for quite a while. You can go all the way back to like the Greek physician uh, Galen. You can look at some of the Chinese stuff. Uh, The Chinese used to have a phrase that said, if his heart beats like a metronome, his time to live is very limited, right? So they didn't really have a way of measuring it, but they could listen to it. And over time, with practice, they could just kind of analytically go, eh, some variability, not much variability. So it wasn't until we got better measurement systems that we could actually start to quantify What is that amount of variability? So we can assign math to it. And that kind of came from the Russian cosmonaut system. So if you go back in the 60s, early 70s, they're starting to shoot humans into space. And they're going, huh, Well, what happens when we shoot these humans into space? Like, how do we monitor them to know that they're going to be in a good state of health or not? And the big limitation with that was, you know, some technology, but it was actually the transmission of the data, right? They used super old radio link, and they were very, very limited in the amount of data that they could transmit. And even just bytes of data took quite a while. So what they figured out was if they could measure heart rate variability on, let's say, whatever space uh, vehicle they were in, spacecraft, And they could send that raw data, which was literally just one line of code with maybe four bytes of data and then the next line. So what they were doing was they're measuring this distance from one R wave to the next. So how much this one heartbeat was, this next heartbeat and the next heartbeat. They would transmit that data back. So very, very small amount of data. And they would run the math, you know, back over in Russia at that time. And they would do the analysis and they'd be like, oh, wow, they're doing pretty good. Their heart rate variability, they've got some of this fine scale variability, therefore they're not as stressed as we thought, so they're doing pretty good. So that's kind of where it came from in terms of being classified actually as a system. And so what you're trying to measure is that's a pretty good darn proxy for your status of your autonomic nervous system. So your autonomic nervous system, as most people probably already know, has two main branches, the parasympathetic branch and the sympathetic branch. So, the parasympathetic branch is like pushing down the brake on your car. If I push harder down on the brake, the car is going to slow down. So, paradoxically, I increase something called vagal tone. I increase this parasympathetic side, like stepping on the brake harder on the car, your heart rate is actually going to slow down faster. On the sympathetic side, you've got more of the stress mechanism, just like the gas pedal on your car. I hit the gas pedal harder, I'm going to stress the engine a little bit more, but the car in general is going to go a little bit faster. So sympathetic is more the stress side, uh, fight or flight response. Parasympathetic is more the kind of generally billed as the rest and recovery side. And so by looking at these two branches of the autonomic nervous system, when we run a heart rate variability analysis, it tells us, okay, what is the status of this autonomic nervous system? Like in English, like how much stress are you really seeing at that point? And there's a bunch of other nuances to it, but it's given us a status of the stress level at the level of the autonomic nervous system.
1: Right. Thanks for the, the background history on that. I knew it had to do with Russian cosmonauts, but didn't know the exact story about why they use that. In addition to being a good measure of autonomic stress, like you mentioned, but it was as easy to send the the numbers after crunching the the numbers. Cool. And then and thanks for explaining the autonomic nervous system because some people have been listening to the show for a while and probably have heard you a few times. And then there's people who are like, autonomic what a system, right? I thought there was a brain and a spinal cord, and that was it. Central nervous system, what? (laughs) (laughs) Right. So so this is, everyone knows, everyone has experienced both. The most obvious being like drinking a cup of coffee or being angry on the road, which hopefully everyone has gotten a a break from with the coronavirus or a fight with your partner, that type of thing. So heart rate variability measures these inter- beat uh durations and as you said the more variability in between those interbeat durations or interbeat the the time in between heartbeats the better and so how do we use this data to make better decisions about what we do exercise wise or even lifestyle wise yeah My little
0: golden rule of HRV is that at the best and the worst, the only thing we know for sure is that HRV will tell us pretty accurately what the status of your autonomic nervous system is at that point in time. So, I mean, you know, we'll get into how you measure it, but assuming you do the measurement correctly, um, it'll tell you the status of your autonomic nervous system at that point. So to me, that's super useful, right? Because if we go back in time, When I was doing this in the lab, I started doing measurements on HRV in the lab probably 13 years ago now. We had to get all this equipment. We had to have people come into the lab. We had to hook up the EKG. We had this other machine to grab the data off it. I had to friggin write a custom code in MATLAB to extract the data. I had to look at the data to make sure it was correct. And then I had to take another program, Kubios, to actually run the data, do the variability analysis, all just to spit out a number. And the used equipment we got cost us like 10 grand in order to run it. So not practical. And if you want to have this done, you had to come to the lab, right? And so getting a single measurement of the status of your autonomic nervous system is really not super interesting. It's not all that useful. However, about eight years ago, um, Ithlate was the first app that I used. They're one of the first people out that had a verified app that would do this. Now I can put a little heart rate strap on in the morning use an $8 app on my phone, and I can run this measurement almost for free every day. So now I can start to see changes from one day to the next day to the next day to the next day. Now, that's actually a lot more interesting because now I'm seeing how does my nervous system respond to different things. The pro is that uh, status of the autonomic nervous system is influenced by a lot of stuff. Uh, as you mentioned, uh, coffee, stimulants, uh, food, emotional status, uh, sleep, training, just kind of anything you would think of as a potential stressor in your life, quality of sleep, all that kind of stuff, hydration, fluid intake, electrolytes. So, it's good that the measurement can be influenced by different different levels of stressors. It's good that it tells us the level of stress on the autonomic nervous system, otherwise it's not going to be very useful. It's good that we can measure it now basically for free every day. It takes about 60 seconds once you're at a nice, uh, ready, rested state. So it doesn't take very long, three to five minutes, maybe total time each day. The downside is it will not tell you what stressor is affecting it. And that's one of the things that comes up for debate. So in like the iFleet app and some of the other apps, you have a way of just self-rating on a 1 to 10 scale context. So I can rate my energy, I can rate how my sleep was, I can rate my nutrition. And so now I can kind of aggregate both quantitative and qualitative data. So quantitative, I get resting heart rate, and I get a status of HRV, which is a pretty good marker for stress. Qualitatively, now I get my self-report of all these other things. So I can look back and then look and see, oh wow, I self-reported my sleep was horrible for five days oh, wow, my HRV shows that I got a lot more stressed. Hmm, I think those are probably associated with each other. And the all the other things that can affect HRV is where a lot of the arguments uh, come up for the most part.
1: Right, a great point. So you get your HRV measured and it gives you some type of status reading on your autonomic nervous system. In other words, how stressed you are, but doesn't tell you, where that stress is coming from. Also, it doesn't tell you at least the, I mean, I ha, I wear an aura. I, I used the Morpheus band. Yeah, and I want to dive into that uh, because I've got a client who I talked to today. He's like, man, I love the Whoop band. Mm. Never used it before, but there's so many different ways to measure, so many different apps, so many, di- you mentioned Athlete how how do you say it athlete yeah instead of athlete just put an i there athlete athlete and um i remember having a conversation or an exchange with you anyway about aura versus athlete yeah. and what context for what person so if if someone's listening to this right now how would they know what app or device to use and then we can talk about what to do with that information. Yeah, yeah, totally. So the first
0: thing I'm going to look at is do they have any actual data published on their little device? Because everybody and their brother now is putting HRV in everything. Right? And, I, and it wasn't just me that predicted this, but about 4 years ago once uh, people started going to optical heart rate uh, via watches and everything. It's the next step is to go, "Oh, look at we've got, you know, live data" Ooh, let's just run it through this HRV analysis. And will it spit out numbers? Yeah. right. The old engineering phrase, you know, crap in equals crap out, right? So if I put poor quality data into a variability analysis thing, will it spit out a number? Of course it's going to spit out a number. Does that mean it's super accurate? Probably not, right? So the first thing I do is look at, okay, is there any published literature on this widget on the algorithm that they're using? And I understand that if you're a widget maker having proprietary algorithms, I, I, I get it. Um, however, I would still like to see some data that says your thing is doing the thing that tells me it's supposed to be doing, not just spitting out a number, right? Because people are like, oh, my what and what are Apple watch gives me HRV now. Isn't this great? I'd, I want to see some actual data. Now, the good part is more companies are actually publishing more data, which is good. I think... Maybe could you get HRV off an optical off of a watch? Maybe. I have yet to be convinced on that. Maybe I'll change my mind. Um, It appears you can get it off of the camera app on the phone, uh, which about three or four years ago, I would have said, no, I don't believe that. But there's been several studies now that uh, appear that that is accurate. However, the camera app is a little bit different than the way the light sensor bounces off of your wrist. Now, if you have a dedicated sensor like a little finger sensor or something that's specifically made for gathering data, uh, that may be accurate. So in the case of iFleet, they've got a couple studies showing that it's been published and it does what it says it does. In the case of Aura, we mentioned, they do have a study published in the journal Sleep showing that the HRV is actually quite accurate. So Aura, one of the reasons they made a ring is because they have easy access to the vessel there. And it's much easier to get that data off of the vessel right on the finger than it is to try to pull data off of the wrist. The wrist is a pretty horrible place to try to get super accurate data. I mean, I have a Garmin Fenix, I love it, but for higher heart rates or things where I know my heart rate's going to change real fast, the optical sensor isn't very good. For low-level heart rate, for kind of day-to-day stuff, it's not too bad because the caveat is for HRV, if we go back and go, okay, what is HRV? We need to measure that distance from one, what's called R-wave to the next R-wave. Right, So if you do the old school EKG where they run the paper and you see the little spiky things going across, the little super spiky thing is the top of what's called the R wave. That's when the depolarization, the electrical signal, goes through the ventricle, the bottom chamber, and you get that nice sharp wave. So what the algorithm is doing is it's trying to find the peak of that wave, and it's going to measure to the next peak of the next wave. And that's how you get heart rate. Right, Divide by 60,000, you get heart rate. Um, When we do HRV... We have that number in milliseconds, and then we do our fancy math variability analysis. The caveat is you have to make sure that you're picking off that top of that PKR wave exactly when it happens, within a few milliseconds, because you're doing a fine scale variability. You're literally looking for millisecond changes. So if you can't pick that thing off very accurately, you're just going to get lost in a bunch of noise. So, uh, Aura appears to do it quite accurately. They can actually map the whole waveform out. That's how they get respiration rate from it and a whole bunch of other stuff. Um, iThleet appears to do it uh, quite accurately. Most chest strap devices are pretty good quality, right? So, Polar was one of the original people to do that. That's so pretty good EKG quality, so it's relatively easy to get the signal from there. So, my bias currently, and again, there's some other devices that are still good. Um, I primarily use iFit for people who are more on the athletic side and want to see kind of a difference day-to-day because now we also have to talk about there's different ways of collecting the data so the benefit of aura is that it's collecting data seamlessly with literally more than every beat every night right they can like i said they can actually map out they're showing the raw data you can actually see the whole uh, r wave and everything perfectly so that's good they have published data showing that it's accurate awesome the downside, though, is that because it's aggregating data over the course of the night, it doesn't necessarily match what a lot of the research has been done, right? Because before, remember, before we had uh, these fancy devices, you would have had to come into a lab and, in essence, do almost like a sleep study, gather HRV data, and do that on multiple nights. It's pretty expensive. Uh, hasn't really been done a whole lot. So, the HRV you get off of Aura, it's accurate. It's what they call time domain analysis, and they give you that in milliseconds. The downside is, though, that it doesn't match how the other method that's done in research, which we'll talk about coming up, and it's going to be affected by the length of your sleep and the sleep quality that you have, right? Because you can imagine if you see someone who snores a lot, right, they have a higher sympathetic tone just because they're going to, you know, almost feel like they're going to lose breathing during the night. So, (laughs) your body's going to You know, shoot up your sympathetic tone. Is that going to show up in your HRV? Yes. You could argue that if that's kind of a known constant, maybe you can look for changes in HRV. But if you have someone who gets maybe four hours of sleep one night, eight hours of sleep the next night, now you have a problem of you've gathered uh, time differently, right? Because you gathered over four hours and now you gathered over eight hours. Now, supposedly, Whoop does it different from what I've heard, that they're trying to grab that same data period each time. The downside is, unless there's some new data, I haven't seen them publish anything on any of their algorithms. So, if any Whoop people are listening, please contact me with any data that you have. <laughs> um, with iFleet, what you're doing is you're going to get up in the morning. You probably do it seated for most people, unless you're really low, low heart rate or endurance athlete. You may do it standing Get a nice seated position, put the the strap on, uh, wait there maybe one to two minutes, and then hit start. It'll take 60 seconds, and you'll grab your data point. So you're grabbing one single point at the first time in the morning, right, assuming this is a very stable period after sleep. Now, we have a fair amount of data because when we gather data in the lab, that's how we used to do it. Come in the lab first thing in the morning, don't have anything related to drink, don't have any coffee, don't exercise, all that kind of stuff. And then we can do kind of an intervention uh, with that. Now, with portable devices, we have a fair amount of data using that method. The pro is that it's going to be a little bit more reflective of any other stressors from the last about 24 hours. Um, The downside is it's going to take you three to five minutes to do each morning. Or Aura is going to grab all your data automatically. You don't have to stop and pause to do anything. So generally what I do is if people are like, eh, I just kind of want to generally know where my HRV is, and I'm just kind of looking for big rocks and big changes. Yeah, I went out with the boys and had a, a blitzer and had four drinks. Will that show up my Aura score? Yeah, absolutely. Like one to two drinks will normally show up. Why? Because alcohol generally crushes HRV, right? And there's some pretty good literature on that. Um, however, if you're like, man, I don't know if I should have trained that hard in the gym yesterday and I want to use Aura, you really have to kind of blitz yourself in the gym in order to see a difference in that. However, in the athlete score, it's a little bit more sensitive to changes in stress. So if I have someone who's trying to really dial in their training, you are like, man, my lifestyle is pretty good. I go to bed about the same time I get up. My nutrition is pretty consistent. But my training is the big variable that I can move around from one day to the next. Athlete's probably going to be a little bit better to see those changes from one day to the next.
1: Nice, simple answer, isn't it? <laughs> I love this. Love talking to you. Seriously, uh, it's so nice to get these nuanced explanations, other than yeah, just use athlete. Yeah. just use aura. <laughs> just take your HRV. Just you know, it's the that's where all the gold is in in the nuance. So I'm 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 loving what you're sharing here. I appreciate it. So we have two different situations. If you just generally want to know your HRV. Or is good for that. And just to back up a bit, you said, look for wearables and apps that have published some data. And if not, it doesn't mean it doesn't work, but it's a bit of a crapshoot. And we're in a situation where, uh, an economic situation at least, where people are just trying to make money, nothing wrong with that, but some people have more uh, of a uh, higher ethical standards than others. And uh yeah, and you don't need to publish papers to to make money, right? Like uh this is we're getting into the nuance and even you know the best marketing wins usually not the best product. So no, I appreciate that cuz everyone comes here from other shows, because this is what we do. Yeah. Right here. So unpack this stuff. And another thing. So I'll ask you this, Mike. I was interviewing Keith Barr. And unfortunately, this is a while ago. He's a great person to talk to. He was talking about recovery and uh, you know, forgive me because this is a bit of hearsay, and it's a bit a while. Uh, 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 it's been a few months, but what he really said is all those numbers. What the real thing that you need to ask yourself is: How do I feel? Do I feel like I can, can go and crush it or not? And that's he was arguing more important than any type of metric you could use, any type of measurement you could do. Um, And by the way, it wasn't him who was saying that he was repeating from someone who was studying recovery and has some, uh, I believe the app was to detect the velocity of, say, a barbell or exercise and just kind of measuring progress from there, which I have not fooled around with, but I'm sure you're familiar with. Man, how do you, how deep, you you kind of answered the question, hey, stick with if if you want to see day-to-day stuff, but one, it, it no matter what you get, how do we make decisions based on how to train using this stuff? Yeah. And how do? Wh- what are the questions we need to ask ourselves? Like, Hey, my, my, my score is good. My hip is hurting, mm-hmm. but my score is good. Or my muscles feel fried. Kevin, the infamous Kevin Bass I know you don't know him. We already talked about that, but <laughs> I love it. <in> <laughs> <hall. laughs> yeah, well, he, I, but, but was sharing something on, um, actually, I would love to connect you two, but you're not on Twitter. But uh, he was asking about HRV. I was like, well, you got it. There's only one person that I trust when it comes to to ask about this stuff. And that was you, uh, Mike. But he was saying his, his scores were good, but his, in, uh, his his legs felt a bit fried, his leg muscles felt a bit, a bit fried. So can you unpack that for us? I know I threw a lot at you, but I know you can handle it.
0: Yeah. So so a couple of things. So we'll kind of go all over the board here. Um, yeah. So Keith barr has got a lot of great stuff, uh, especially on, again, a collagen, uh, engineered ligaments, super awesome stuff. Yeah. So I would say that the answer to high level depends. And then at the end, I'll tell you what I actually do to figure out how, what is useful or not. Um, if we look at the literature and we look at uh, overreaching versus overtraining syndrome, right? So some people say, oh, overtraining doesn't exist. Yes, it exists. Uh, it's called overtraining syndrome or OTS. Will most people ever get a real true overtraining syndrome? Probably not. I mean, if you're training an hour a day in the gym, even if you're busting your ass, unless your outside life is just an, an absolute freaking debacle and you're sleeping four hours a night and living on eight cups of coffee for months on end, you're probably not going to get overtraining syndrome. However, if you're a high-level Olympic athlete, especially if you're pushing a lot of volume, is it a possibility? Yes. Is it even rare then? Yes. Uh, if you do actually get overtraining syndrome, let's say you're an Olympic-level athlete, your career is probably done, right? You you're going to literally be laying on your couch, drilling on yourself, because your body at the highest level is very much survival based, right? And so think about what happens. So if we have let's say Bob who's training harder, and he keeps going to the gym, ah, you know, at first he doesn't feel very good. He starts getting kind of weird, sort of niggly injuries, and he's like, ah, I'm going to power through it because I heard overtraining syndrome isn't a thing. And as he keeps going, if we monitored his performance his performance will actually start to go down. Now, how many people actually monitor their performance in the gym? Not a lot. All right, we could put fancy devices on it. We could look at velocity-based training, VBT, uh, which is a pretty good way to detect changes. Long story short, if Bob just keeps going after it every single day and his outside life is a disaster, and he's training multiple hours a day, at some point his brain goes, hey, this isn't good. You're actually destroying us. We're not recovering we are not going to last doing this. So we're going to start cutting your performance. We're going to start making you feel like poo. You're not going to sleep well. You're going to start having all of these issues. Bob's like, no, screw this. I'm just going to bring more coffee and I'm going to train. It's going to be great. At some point, you're literally going to get the string pulled out of your back. You're actually going to go from something of very sympathetic, right? So very much on the stress side of the spectrum uh, to literally in a short period of time, massively parasympathetic or what's called mean parasympathetically overreached. Because your brain goes, I'm going to make you feel so bad and cut your performance so hard, you're not going to be able to do anything. So if that happens, and you get to a true state of overtrained syndrome, it's going to be months to possibly years to recover back to an elite level. Now, most people will never get to that point, but it does exist, so that's way far and extreme. However, you could reach something which is called overreaching. So if you use Dr. Bill Kramer's definition, What is overreaching or someone who has purposely been overreached? If you take two weeks off of training and then you're able to recover back to normal, in hindsight, you're probably overreached. Now, the hard part is, well, how do we predict when this is going to happen? That's really, really messy. The best indicators we have so far are willingness to train is definitely up there, right? So uh, Andy Fry uh, did these great studies in the 90s. We had people come in and do Olympic weightlifting to like the 90th percentile, their one rep max, I think every day for like two weeks, I think. And what you found was after a while, they started missing lifts, right? Velocity started going down and their willingness to train just started tanking. Like, bro, I don't want to be here. This sucks. I don't want to come here. They feel tired. They feel lethargic. So those things do happen. So is there some truth to willingness to train and feeling like you want to crush in the gym kind of goes away? Yes. Now, the caveat to the other side of that is, can you train through some of that to some degree? Actually, you can. Um, and that's where it gets super confusing, especially if you're a higher-level athlete or you're just a little bit more trained. Uh, so what we did in uh, Costa Rica last December, at, I got my little shirt on the Bro Research uh, Center. Uh, Dr. Tommy Wood, Dr. Ben House, uh, Ryan, myself, some other guys. Uh, Eric Helms was there, too. So we're like, so what happens if we take a bunch of, you know, relatively trained meatheads, we bring them down to the jungle, we, we have them stay in the same place, we feed them about the same food, they stay in the same area, and we have them train full body for about two hours a day for four days in a row. And we're going to monitor their main lifts using a gym aware, we're going to take all accessory stuff to an RP of like a nine and a half or maybe basically almost a failure We're just going to, you know, kind of beat the crap out of them for four days. Now, again, uh, this is anecdotal because this hasn't officially been published yet. But one of the things that kind of looks like a trend, and again, I can't say too much until the data is actually published, is on some of the accessory lifts, people actually did a little bit better on day three and four. But you're like scratching your head going, hey, wait a minute. What is is that? I mean, you're doing like a cable press down. Like how much motor learning is there to a freaking cable press down? Maybe there's more than we think, right? Because again, it's kind of a little bit of a novel situation, because so we only had a limited amount of time. Um, so in that situation, people definitely got a little bit better. So I think if you have a high training stress, but it's relatively acute, which who knows what that really means, you can probably buffer some of that stress and be okay. right? So if you go all the way back and you look at like just old school classic, you know, like a lot of systems the Russians did. You can argue about linear periodization or whatever. But the general trend is, okay, let's just add a little more volume. Let's add a little more volume. Hey, let's add a little bit more volume. Uh Uh-oh, your performance is starting to drop. Oh, screw it. Let's purposely overreach you for like a week, maybe two weeks. And then we'll back off. We'll run a taper and we'll see some super compensation. So is that a real thing? Yep, that's a real thing. However, that period of time was very short, was very controlled, And it generally was done in higher-level athletes. So the more trained you are, the more you can probably buffer some of that stress. So great. Okay, all that mumbo-jumbo stuff like what the hell do I do about this in practice and what the hell does HRV have anything to do with it? If we monitor HRV and we say, okay, training stress is the only thing, right? So we've got a pretty high-level athlete. All of his other life is dialed in. Everything's good. We don't have to worry about other stressors. The training stress, number one. With those kind of athletes, I will purposely overreach them on purpose, and I'm waiting to see that they hate life, they hate me, and their HRV starts to drop. Right, Usually those three things, because what does that tell me? I've probably started to reach that plateau, and I'm going to maybe push them for another week or so, and then I'm going to cut their volume usually in half or maybe a third, and then they're going to have their little bit of a deload. Ideally, if they were doing uh, performance, their performance would be then. Or we'll kind of move into the next phase of their training cycle. So HRV is a pretty good marker for status on that autonomic nervous system. Again, going back to what we said originally, a lot of the debate online is that HRV is predictive of training performance. In endurance training, maybe. There's some literature to show that it it may be okay. For strength training, for prediction of acute performance, so i.e., oh, my HRV is red today, Oh, my gym performance is going to suck. Not really, right? Because think back to what we do with stress. Like, we can buffer some stress for a short period of time, right? Think of like all the traveling and stuff you've done. I can guarantee you've probably gone to the gym on like four hours of sleep, had two cups of coffee, and it went pretty good, right? Granted, you're using caffeine and that type of stuff, but you can't do that every single day, right? If I take my little 2001 Jetta and I redline it to Cub Foods, like, I'll get there faster. But can I expect to redline it every day, driving around like I stole the car and expect it to last 200,000 miles? Well, no, of course not, right? So acutely, can we uh, do pretty well with performance? Yes. So if I have someone who, say, is in a max output of power, like a power lifter, even though it's not power, it's strength, I actually want them to be a little bit stressed on the day of the competition. Why? I want a little bit of sympathetic system kind of cranking away because that's going to be better for a gross motor output, right Max lift because who cares they can take seven to fourteen days off afterwards. It doesn't matter right their goal is to execute a high level performance on that day and the amount of time it takes to recover isn't a big deal. However, if I go back to someone who's say 16 weeks out, man, do I want them to you know go balls out in the gym and like t- have to take a week off? Hell no, probably not. Right, Because think of all that training that they're going to then miss. So I view it as a, a stress versus distress. So eustress, eustress, stress that generally you can recover from a little bit faster. A distress event, high amount of stress, it's going to take you a longer time to recover. So for people who do meets or do competitions, competition day, you're doing a three-day CrossFit Games, that's a very high amount of distress. It's going to take you quite a while to recover from that. So I think most training should be a use stress, meaning, yes, you want to stress the body. Yes, you want to apply overload. Yes, you probably need to work hard. All those things are true. However, ideally, you want to accumulate volume and I'm a big fan of frequency. So if someone can go from training two days a week to three days a week to four days a week and maintain the quality of training, they're going to get more volume and get more reps, they are going to get more practice, everything's going to get better. So I like using HRV as a way to try to quantify where they are on that spectrum, right? So if they're in week three of a program I have and their HRV is just tanking every single day and their outside stress is all good, man, I must have screwed up. Like I probably gave them too much stress. So I'm going to probably pull back on that. If, however, their HRV is actually getting better every day, meaning they're actually getting more and more parasympathetic, they're recovering higher and higher, well, screw it, I'm probably going to start adding more volume and more intensity to their program, right? Their nervous system is telling me that they can handle it. So the beautiful thing about HRV is it's telling you the response of the nervous system to everything that's going on in terms of stress. Because one of the I sort of criticisms I get is that, oh, you're just using HRV to tell people not to train. It's like, not really. Like if their HRV is great and it's already at a good level, and let's say their goal is power, Awesome. We get to train more. Perfect. However, if your HRV is constantly tanking, even if you're doing, let's say, a physique show where you're not graded on performance, but if you're 16 weeks out and you just started your diet and your HRV is just showing you that you're massively stressed, I can guarantee in about eight weeks, all the wheels are going to come off and it's going to be a friggin' disaster. Right. But I would rather know that now so we can try to make some adjustments than have to go through the whole process. And be like, oh, yeah, that, that, that was bad. <laughs> it wasn't so good. So let me know if that's a useful, long-winded answer to it. Yeah. Call.
1: No, I, I would like to shift gears because you're mentioning about athletes. And give, that's a great example because it's something that most of us can refer to. Most of us have played sports or enjoy watching sports. But what about entrepreneur athletes and, and professional athletes Who may not have a high training load, but or maybe right, (laughs) depending on how crazy they are. But they definitely have like the stress of running a business. They have a stress of you know being an accountant during the coronavirus quarantine, right? Right. All the all the stuff that so many people are going through right now. What would you say about HRV and using that to make decisions? about uh, how we're living our lifestyle. And the one other thing I would like to just throw in there before you answer is unlike, say, a professional or a competitive athlete, let's say, even if they're not pro, they're probably dialed in like, oh, I need to get be- to bed by a certain time. I need to not drink alcohol every night. I, You know what I mean? A lot of, let's say, office athletes don't have that same Approach when it comes to lifestyle. In fact, uh, you know a lot. We've seen that alcohol consumption and probably you know recreational drug consumption is up. What can you tell us about how we, how people like that can use HRV?
0: Yeah, no, that's perfect. Um, The reason I use a lot of athlete examples is because I work with a fair amount of athletes, but I work with a lot of you know general pop and high level executives and trainers too. Um, the athlete examples are usually easier for people to understand, even like you said, if they don't compete because they watch sports on TV, they kind of get the idea. They're like, yeah, it makes sense. So initially when I started using uh, daily HRV about almost seven and a half, eight years ago now, my thought was, oh, this is going to be great. So my higher level athletes definitely going to use HRV. It's going to be awesome. Everybody else, eh, I don't know. It's probably worthless. And I'm like, well, maybe I should just get more data, right? If I can get these people to collect the data, uh, it'd be useful just to see what I find. So I started saying early on, I just said, okay, everybody use it. It's just a requirement of the program. I'll pay for it. I'll send it to you. You just have to agree to use it. They're like, okay, great. That's fine. What I quickly found out was exactly what you said. You, you kind of have two cases. You have the one case where you have more uh, a higher level athlete and some elite athletes have just, you'd be amazed at their nutrition and lifestyle. It's a disaster. But um, you've got people who have very good control of their lifestyle Training is their number one stressor, right? That's the thing that is the biggest thing that's going to move their HRV. A lot of other people have the training is kind of the same day to day. Their lifestyle is like all over the place, man. Like they're like, I run a job. I've got two kids. I had to drive back and forth. Now I work from home. My kids drive me insane, right? They have a lot of stressors going on and they just go to the gym to keep their sanity, right? So their, their training may not necessarily have a lot of overload, at least from one phase to the next. Over their lifestyle is like all over the map. So those are kind of the two cases. And again, HRV is still, I find useful in both, but almost the polar opposite. So if I have someone like a new client who's, let's say, a high-level executive, pretty high stress, what I'm going to do is I'm like, okay, what we're going to do is we're just going to take HRV for four weeks. We're going to start your training really low, which I do with most people. We're just going to do two sets, a couple exercises, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, And I'm just going to keep adding more volume to their training to see kind of what happens. And then I want you to use, say, the sleep, And I want you to make sure to fill out those context things. Each morning, I want you to ask yourself on a 1 to 10 scale, rate your energy, rate your nutrition, rate your sleep, right? Rate these eight different factors. So after four weeks, I go back and I look at the data. So I tell them, okay, God, you just give me four weeks. I know it's going to suck. You're going to be like, why am I doing this stupid thing on week two? It doesn't make any sense. Um, but after four weeks, I go back then and I look at all the context and I look at their stress. My goal is to pick out the one or two things that are the biggest stressors for them because different stressors will affect people different. Like I've seen some people who have, by all looking at paper, even pretty high level athletes, their nutrition is a freaking disaster. It's a trash bin fire. You're like, oh my God, this person, if they just fix this, would be so much better And for whatever reason, it doesn't shift their HRV that much. I'm not saying there's not repercussions from it. It just doesn't move it all that much. Other people, massive difference, right? The only exception I found to this is sleep. Like almost no one can get by with like really low levels of sleep without an impact. All the other stuff, people can buffer to different degrees, some better than others. So it allows you to figure out for them what are like their top two stressors that are currently impacting their physiology the most. Right, Because you could look at it and you could go, man, there's like eight different things I could pick here that you could work on, and they probably would get better. Right, But I also think they're paying me or they're paying you a lot of money to figure out, okay, I, I've got an hour a day I can give you to do my stuff that you tell me to do. That's all I can give you. You need to figure out for that hour of the day what are the most impactful things that are going to move the needle for that person. Right, So I'll look and I'll be like, wow, um, yeah, definitely sleep and definitely, let's say, nutrition. Right, And I used to then argue with people and be like, you know, Bob, man, you're sleeping six hours a night. You're drinking like eight cups of coffee a day. What are you doing? And it just never goes well, right? Because sleep is a weird thing. And they're like, ah, oh, you're telling me I want to go to bed earlier. So when I hang out with my wife and kids at night and you're telling me not to do that and to go to bed, right? Or quit my job or do something drastically. So now I just send them a graph. I'm like, okay, hey, we looked at your stress for four weeks. Uh, here's your stress level. Woo! You're definitely getting stressed. And then here's your self-report of sleep, doing the opposite, right? you went from starting out at six hours a night to like four. And I just send them a graph of the two things going the direct opposite. I'm like, hey, what do you think's going on? And like these same people I had discussions with about how they need to sleep more or whatever, come back and go, oh my God. So like, you're telling me that like my, my sleep affects my stress level. I'm like, yeah. Like, oh, I, I never knew this. Like this is a, it was like the biggest revelation they've ever seen in their life, you know? And and they're like, well, what do I do about it? Like, oh, I'm so glad you asked, right? So I'm using data to drive them into the direction I want, but I'm literally trying to make them think it was their idea, right? Because now they're bought in, right? So when they ask me, okay, what do I do to fix this? Oh, wow, I'm glad you asked, right? And then you can do whatever (laughs) interventions you had. So, it allows you then to figure out what is their biggest stressors, and then the nice part is, let's, let's just pick on sleep, it allows you a way to kind of track to see how they're doing, right? Because in theory, if you pick the big thing and they're doing better, sleep is really hard because you have this massive sleep debt, you know, even getting like 20 minutes more sleep a night, a half hour, people don't always feel that much better. But if I can show them that, oh, your HRV is getting a little bit better each day, that's a kind of a positive incentive to say, "Hey, you know this ha- is having an impact on you. like this is actual real data from your body showing you a response, and you are doing good work, and you are making a difference, even though you've got such a massive sleep death that you may not necessarily feel better yet. right? And so sometimes that's enough to kind of bridge them to keep doing those habits to get to the point where you know, maybe four or six weeks later they're like, "Oh wow, you know I, I do actually feel a little bit better now." Right, so it gives you a way of kind of grading the intervention, also, so that they stay with the habit, or they find, you know, hey, I went out with Bob last night, and we had two drinks each, and oh my God, my HRV dropped by fifteen points. Like I never knew this either. Right, so you're allowing them to kind of discover things that, you know, as a coach, in honesty, you could look at it and tell them what's going on, but it's completely different for them to look and go, wow, this has a huge impact. I never realized that. Than you saying. Hey Bob, you should stop drinking, right? I mean, two completely yeah, that doesn't work.
1: Yeah, no, (laughs) I I couldn't help but to laugh a little bit when you were giving that example. Yeah, uh, it's so true. Stop being difficult, people. Actually, it's just it's fine. Uh, We know what to do now, right? But uh, right, that's fascinating stuff. And it kind of the question that comes up for me after hearing that is. and really the answer i think is to hire someone like you especially if you're if you're listening to this right now and you're like yeah what mike is saying there that makes a lot of <laughs> sense and uh let me try to figure out on my own hey go for it but you know and for most people probably uh, that's what they'll try to do but if you're if you're someone who is interested in coaching and you want to work with someone who can help you dial in this area better I mean just just do it just uh reach out to mike well well uh, w- where can they go and reach out to you Mike
0: yeah probably the best place is just the the main website is mike tnelson Uh if they're interested in training they can go to mike tnelson forward slash training uh there'll be a little thing on the mike t nelson site to get on the newsletter so that's probably the best place for most of the information and there'll be a contact form and stuff there too they can get a hold of me
1: so here's what I would recommend. Go to com, Sign up for his newsletter because Mike shares some great information. Unsubscribe from, again, Beanfield's uh, <laughs> email newsletter. Stop puffing on molecular hydrogen or whatever the freak, the, the, the latest biohack is. It's like it's molecular. It's like yeah, well, it's all, it's all molecules, but whatever. Yeah. Anyway, Chem- but uh, chemicals. But anyway, yeah. um it, it, Go there, sign up if it resonate if you resonated with what Mike shared today, and go from there. And and if you're a person who you know that you need some coaching in this area, just just pull the trigger, hop on a call with Mike. Mike, now cut me that check that you said, yeah, if I plugged you hard, (laughs) no, but (laughs) (laughs) I know. Right. Seriously though, if, if you're struggling with this stuff, get it handled. In fact, uh, when I was thinking when you were talking, I'm like, man, I need to work with Mike. And I know you and I have already talked about it, it. but let's do this. Let's wrap this up because I know you have more time, but I want to ask you some questions, um, personally. And so I'm going to be selfish about it, but again, If you listen to this today, want to learn more about Mike, MikeTNelson.com, sign up for the newsletter, read this stuff, apply it. If you want to take that next level and get this handled big time, just hire him and work with him. Mike, thanks so much, man. It's always a pleasure. Uh, and we've got to do this more often. Yes. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. And, um, Yeah, I mean, I work with
0: a lot of trainers, too, because the trainers have questions about like, oh, man, I don't know how to use this HRV stuff with my client. I'm like, well, you should do it yourself first, right? Because you're going to learn so much more about the process. And then, you know, I'm going to explain what I do with people. Then you can try to replicate it with other people. So, again, I'm just a big fan of, you know, learn learn by doing if it's something you want to figure out. But I thank you for all the plugs there. I appreciate it.
1: Yeah, of course, of course. All right. Well, listen, uh, let's sign off. Thanks so much. And speak again soon. Awesome. Thank you. That wraps up another episode of the Legendary Life Podcast. I want to ask you, what is your big takeaway from listening to today's interview with Dr. Mike T. Nelson? Are you going to start using an aura ring to track your sleep and perhaps start to tinker with your heart rate variability measurement? Are you more of a hard charging, hard training person and you're going to use the iThleet app to start to dial in and balance your training so that you ride the proper line between stress and recovery, what is the big takeaway? Was it a perspective? That's what I want to ask you. Maybe make notes. What are you going to take action on after that, after having listened to this podcast? And those are the questions I want to leave you with, not to draw this out any longer, but I hope you really enjoyed today's episode. I've got so many more great things coming in the future, in the very near future with true science-based health and fitness, giving you the best of the best, while the rest are basically just giving you marketing. Have no shame in saying that. So true. So listen, have an amazing week, and I'll speak to you on Friday. But again, if you haven't subscribed to the show and you want to be notified every time one of my episodes, interviews, Real Talk Fridays come out, go to legendarylightpodcast.com slash review, where I show you how to subscribe to the show. And of course, if you've been listening for a while and you want to give us a review, it is the best compliment you can pay to the show. We show you how to do that as well at legendarylightpodcast.com slash review. That's how I've got. Hope you have an amazing week and I will speak to you on Friday.